This is Historicity, where we use our legs, eyes and ears to turn back time and see how the world got to be the way it is. I'm Angus Lockyer. I've been teaching and writing history for over 20 years, but when I want to think about how the past became the present and where we might go next, I head outside to walk the streets and to pick apart the layers. In these three walks, we're discovering a tale of two cities, the city of London and the city of Westminster, twinned concentrations of wealth and of power, a two-headed beast which birthed the world's first global city. We'll also explore the industries that emerged in the space between them, the lawyers, the journalists, the academics, who serviced, who sometimes tried to constrain power and wealth. We're fast walkers, but you can listen to this at your own pace. Just change the speed on your podcast app to suit yourself. Also, don't be surprised if you sometimes find your path blocked. We'll mention places with restricted hours, but London is always changing, building never stops. It should be easy enough to make your way around the obstruction and get back on track, and you can see the episode notes for maps. In this third and final episode, we're going to be walking down into Westminster itself, where an Anglo-Saxon king built his mausoleum a millennium ago, and where his successors have built a modern state over the last 500 years. We're picking up the story next to the York Watergate, which you'll find in Victoria Embankment Gardens. It's a good place to remember the layers we've unpicked so far and to preview the story to come. You'll find it just next to Embankment Station. I'll meet you there. So here we are in Victoria Embankment Gardens. We're looking directly at the York Watergate, this incredibly elaborate construction with three arches, a coat of arms overhead. Over to our left, the looming hulk of Embankment Place, which has been plonked down on top of Charing Cross Station. But if we'd been here 150 years ago, in about 1860, we'd actually be in the river, maybe in a boat, maybe getting a little bit wet. So what's going on? Originally, the area behind the gate leading up the hill, which we can see, was the London residence of a bishop, the Bishop of Norwich. That's from about the middle of the 13th century or so. But then in the early 16th century, something we've heard about before on our previous walks, there's a turning point. Henry VIII dissolves the monasteries. He gives this land first to a favourite. Under his successor, Mary, it goes to the Archbishop of York. That's why it's called the York Watergate. But then a few years later, in the 1620s, under James I, another favourite takes over the land. This is George Villiers, Duke of Buckingham. It's him who builds this Watergate in the 1620s. It's directly on the river. It provides a grand entrance into his mansion. Only 50 years later, though, his son sells the whole plot. The court is beginning to draw people down. Land is in great demand. His only condition is that his name should go on all the streets, which we'll see in just a minute. But then, middle of the 19th century, second turning point. London is expanding. The infrastructure is creaking. The river has become more or less a sewer. And there's a public health crisis. Here's Dickens describing a scene a little further upstream towards the Houses of Parliament, which haven't been built yet, in David Copperfield. A glimpse of the river through a dull gateway seemed to arrest my feet. Slimy gaps and causeways winding among old wooden piles with a sickly substance clinging to the latter like green hair and the rags of last year's handbills offering rewards for drowned men fluttering above high water mark, led down through the ooze and slush to the ebb tide. 
There was a story that one of the pits dug for the dead in the time of the Great Plague was hereabout, and a blighting influence seemed to have proceeded from it over the whole place, or else it looked as if it had gradually decomposed into that nightmare condition, out of the overflowings of the polluted stream. The Thames is no longer a river at this point, but five years after David Copperfield, in 1855, the Metropolitan Board of Works is created, the first city-wide body responsible for upgrading that infrastructure. Ten years after that, in 1865, work starts on three embankments. We're on the Victoria embankment right here. On the opposite side of the river, we've got Albert, nicely pairing up, and Chelsea a little bit further down. They kill a number of birds with one stone, very effectively. First, they expand the foreshore. Again, they provide us the land on which we're now standing. Space for gardens, which we're standing in, and so statues where you can commemorate the great heroes of the past. There's space for road, and there's also a space for the Underground Railway. The district line is running right underneath us. And above all, they provide space for a modern sewer, beginning to clean up the Thames. That system, in the middle of the 19th century, was built for 2.5 million people living in the city. Now the city houses 10 million. And so, still today, 39 million tonnes of sewage continues to flow into the Thames every year. And so we're building an even bigger, an even more super sewer. Thames Tideway is under construction right now. It's going to be about 7 metres in diameter, nearly 25 feet. And it's going to run for 25 kilometres from Acton, way out in the west of the city, all the way to Beckton, out in the east. For most of its journey, it's going to be actually under the river itself. Here's hoping it cleans things up. So we've got an outline of the story we're going to follow in this walk. We have a medieval period which is dominated by the great bishops, the princes of the church. In the early modern period, we're trying to create an absolute monarchy, in part by distributing favours to people who can aid the king. Then that monarchy is gradually pushed to the side. The market begins to take off, industry begins to do its work, it attracts people into the cities. You need a different kind of state to manage all of this, and also to manage the consequences of what, until recently, has seemed to be endless growth. So we're going to start moving now. You can leave the Watergate on either side. You're aiming for the street directly behind it. You'll find that it's called Buckingham Street. You're going to go through a little alleyway and up a little staircase and then start walking uphill up the street. So here we are on Buckingham Street, walking uphill. We already know what's happened here a little bit from the previous walk. There were a few Roman villas here round about. There's an Anglo-Saxon settlement at the top of the hill. And then beginning in the medieval period, you begin to get these great mansions, ecclesiastical mansions and then aristocratic mansions. Buckingham Street, because this was the mansion of George Villiers, Duke of Buckingham, all of those became streets. There's also a little passageway with his name on it as part of the concession when he began to let land be developed. We're at the top of the hill. We're turning left on John Adams Street. Ahead of us, you can see this looming bulk of the building at the end. This is part of Charing Cross Station. It's the hotel built in the 19th century. And at the end of this little short street, we're going to turn right. So we've turned right. We're now on Villiers Street, another of these streets named after the previous occupant, George Villiers, Duke of Buckingham. We're heading towards the underground sign at the top and we've got the station on our left and we're going to take the stairs on the left up into the station forecourt. 
As we come into the station forecourt on the other side of the Strand, you can see some cream stucco buildings. This is part of an early 19th century development, which we'll talk about a little more when we get to Trafalgar Square. But we're heading for this rather extraordinary monument that sits in front of Charing Cross Station. We'll pause here just for a moment, but to understand what we're seeing, this great monument, we have to go way back in time. We have to go back to the 1290s. Edward I has just lost his queen. She died up north in Lincolnshire, and so he brings her back to Westminster. Along the way, she rests, and at each place she rests, he erects a cross. At the top of this monument, you can see a cross. This is the last of them. It's not originally here. It's a little bit to the west. We'll see the site in a minute. But at that point, the name Charing Cross begins to come into use. Charing basically means bend. At the place where the river bends, there is a cross to Eleanor, and so we have Charing Cross. But again, this isn't the original. This version of the cross, an elaborate Victorian version of the cross, was set up here when the station was built in the 1860s. So to see where the cross originally was, we have to keep walking. We're going to go out of the station forecourt on the other side, aiming for the other entrance to the underground. So we're back on the Strand. You'll see that we're walking downhill. Trafalgar Square is beginning to open up ahead of us. You can begin to see Nelson on his column. And if you want to learn a little bit more about the Strand, of course, you can go back and listen to our previous walk, which tells the earlier history. We're coming out into the bottom of Trafalgar Square. There's a lot of noise. You can hear the sirens going off. This is a very busy intersection. What we want to do is end up on the island by the statue of the man on the horse. It's actually Charles I. We want to end up by the statue, cross the road to the right, and then cross the road over to the left. But be careful as you do so. So here we are next to Charles I on his horse. He's facing down Whitehall, down towards where he was executed in 1649. And beyond, you can see Big Ben and the Houses of Parliament. It's a noisy place. It's a big traffic intersection, as you can hear. This is a great place to stop and work out what's going on. But originally, what was here was a cross, the Eleanor Cross that's now in front of Charing Cross Station. But that was destroyed in 1647 and then replaced in 1675, a few years after his death by this statue. So what's going on? In the 11th century, Edward the Confessor rebuilds a church as his own mausoleum and establishes the first royal palace. That's at the end of the street in front of us, Whitehall. That happens in the 1060s. We'll talk a little bit more about them right at the end of this walk. Fast forward to the 1530s, one of the turning points we know well now. Henry VIII takes over the residence of a disgraced advisor, Cardinal Wolsey. That's further up the street towards us here, and he rebuilds that mansion as Whitehall Palace. It includes a leisure complex, you might call it. It has facilities for jousting, for tennis, and so on. He also begins to build out the parks, St. James's, Green, and Hyde Parks and his successors continue to add to that Whitehall Palace. Charles I, who we're standing next to, is dreaming of a huge new palace on the same site right up until the end of his life, but of course, it's not to be. In the 1640s, instead, the country collapses into civil war. It's really a protest against the royal claim to rule by divine right. 
The parliamentarians, Charles's opponents, surround both the city and Westminster with earthworks to defend them against Charles, and eventually, in 1649, Charles loses his head. It's not clear he's learned his lessons. He is protesting unto the last. These are some of his last words on the scaffold before his head is chopped off. As for the people, truly, I desire their liberty and freedom as much as any whosoever, but I must tell you that their liberty and freedom consists in having a government by those laws by which their lives and their goods may be most their own. It is not for them to have a share in government. That is nothing, sirs, appertaining unto them. A subject and a sovereign are clean, different things. Eleven years later, though, his son, Charles II, is restored to the throne. And that moment, 1660, marks a watershed. On the one hand, the court becomes a fountainhead of offices, of entertainment. It becomes a magnet for wealth and privilege. So you begin to get the aristocrats flocking to these mansions closer to the center of power. It's helped by the city emptying out after the Great Fire in 1666, of course. You begin to get French models of architecture and of gardening. St. James's Park is redesigned with a canal. And you begin to get the Mall, which you can see under the arch over on your right. It replaces Pall Mall over to the north as a place to play Pale Mail. It's a precursor to croquet. By the 18th century, the Mall is becoming a place to parade up and down. But also, from 1660, the crown is slowly being pushed to the side. The grand plans for a new Whitehall Palace come to very little, and eventually James II, the last of the Stuarts, is deposed in 1688. He's replaced by William and Mary, and there's a new political settlement. The divine right of kings finally is replaced by the right of parliament. It's not quite the end of the story. The palace goes up in flames in 1698, and it's abandoned. The monarchy begins to get pushed west to St. James's Palace, to Kensington, to Hampton Court, and from the middle of the 18th century to Buckingham Palace at the end of them all. By the time England and Scotland formally become one country by the Act of Union in 1702, the original seat of royal power is being taken over by the early modern state. But its growth since then has been gradual. It's a story that's clear in the buildings that we're going to meet as we walk and meander around Whitehall. But before we leave, Charles, turn your back on him and take a look at the square in front of you, Trafalgar Square, a hinge between the West End and Westminster, and also a really useful prelude to the story we're about to embark on. The square itself is conceived in the 1810s, finished up in the 1840s, and so you have this plaza on what had originally been the Royal Mews, where the horses were kept, and then was occupied by the Crown Stables from the 18th century. What you have is an attempt to create a grand, imposing urban space. It's part of a bigger scheme. It's a scheme that links Regent's Park in the north through Regent Street to this centre of royal power. Not everybody's convinced by the square. A lot of people think it's quite an unconvincing space. The National Gallery, which is facing towards us, doesn't have enough bulk to be impressive. But the square is also a testament to a moment at the beginning of the 19th century when the country could imagine that it ruled the waves. You've got Nelson on his column, the great victor over the French at the Battle of Trafalgar, after which the square is named. Behind him, to his right, you've got George IV, a statue that went up in 1843. To each side of him, you've got a couple of generals from the mid-century wars in India in the 1850s. And then, of course, the fourth plinth to the left, in the back, is generally empty, or was for a long time. We started to commission artwork to occupy it as a commentary on the other things that we're here about. 
Today it's occupied by an ice cream cone with a drone stuck into the cherry on top. But my favourite installation there was probably back in 2010. It was by Yinka Shonibare, Nelson's ship in a bottle. Shonibare managed to miniaturise HMS Victory, Nelson's flagship on which he died. He put it in a bottle somehow and he patterned the sails with what is called Dutch wax fabric. Originally it's an Indonesian technique, it came over to Europe and then got exported again to West Africa, and it's now characteristic of much that we think of when we think of Nigeria. Shonibari himself is a British Nigerian artist. He also put his initials and his MBE, his membership of the Order of the British Empire, on the side in a seal. A beautifully mysterious construction an ambivalent commentary on the mixed legacy of expansion and empire, which you see in the square itself. So here's Shonibari commenting on what his installation is meant to achieve. Culture has a role to play. In a diverse society, people have to find a way of being together, and that can only come from understanding other cultures. Otherwise, you're just fighting for space. But I'm from London now. I've been here for 30 years. In Lagos, I would feel like a foreigner. The city has had such an impact on my work, and I love it. I love what you could call Vindaloo Britishness. It's a mixed-up thing. You hear it in British music, you taste it in British food. This purity notion is nonsense, and I cherish that. So Trafalgar Square is testament to the country's increasing ability to project force overseas, and that's made possible by the state's ability in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries to raise the money it needed to fight the wars. We've already seen that in our first walk in the city of London. The Bank of England was founded in the 1690s, after all, as a private bank to fund the war with France. And war is a large part of the early history of Westminster. Defence spending occupies a huge proportion of the national budget well into the 19th century. It's still over half the budget in the middle of the 19th century. But this story about debt and about war is easiest to see in reverse and from the backside of Whitehall. So we're going to leave the square now. If you're facing the National Gallery, you want to turn around to your left, you'll see a huge arch. This is Admiralty Arch. So to get there, we need to cross the road. Again, we'll need to be a little careful doing it. It's a very busy intersection. So I hope you've made your way safely across the intersection and you're walking towards Admiralty Arch. As you do, you can see above this Latin inscription, it tells you when it was built. Translated, it says, this was built in the year of our Lord, 1910, in the reign of Edward VII, as an expression of civic gratitude to Queen Victoria, who, of course, has been dead 10 years by that point. If you can't walk directly under the arch because it's blocked off, just take the road to your left, which will lead you around and back out onto the Mall. And as we do, we'll see the story of the war being made by the British state. So the arch itself is built in 1910. It's part of a bigger project in the early 20th century. It's going to link Trafalgar Square. The mall beyond it is widened. And then Buckingham Palace is itself refaced, glammed up, if you like, all as a monument to Victoria. When it opens, it has the largest gates in the country. And originally, of course, it's designed for the Navy. It's the official residence of the head of the Navy, the first sea lord. By the 1980s, in the wake of the Cold War, the Navy is beginning to downsize. The Cabinet Office moves into the Arch in 2001. And then in 2012, it's actually sold off, or leased rather, and is now becoming a hotel.
As we walk through the arch on your left-hand side, you'll begin to see a red brick and cream building, again quite neoclassical, which is built a little earlier. This is an extension to the Admiralty, built in 1888 to 95. And on the corner, beyond the Admiralty extension, a dark brown building, which looks very forbidding and is in fact a citadel. This is part of a vast underground complex, which stretches from here all the way past the Houses of Parliament, built in 1939 as a place to retreat during the war. As we walk this little way down the Mall. On our right, we can see more cream-coloured buildings. This is the terminus of this great early 19th century project. But we're going to turn left here at the end of this ivy-covered wall. As you do, you can see the National Police Memorial on your right. Go between it and the Citadel. So as we come to the end of the ivy-covered citadel wall, you'll see opening in front of you a parade ground, which is indeed what it is. This is Horse Guards Parade, where the household cavalry does its thing at least once a year, surrounded by various buildings. So it's worth pausing here in the middle of Horse Guards Parade and looking around. We're going to start on the left with the building we've already seen from the other side, red brick and cream. This is the Admiralty Extension, built at the end of the 19th century. In the corner, a more nondescript building, kind of yellowish brick. This is Admiralty House, built a century before that, at the end of the 18th century. That's the earlier residence for the first sea lord. In the middle of the square, turrets and cream, is horse guards. That's from the middle of the 18th century. That's not for the navy. That's stables, barracks and offices for the Secretary of War, mainly concerned with the army's business. And then between the two, you have the Paymaster General's office. The army needs finance. The Paymaster General comes into existence in 1661, a familiar date at this point. And the final piece of the puzzle, even earlier, which we can't see, it's tucked behind the two Admiralty buildings here, is the Old Admiralty. Right at the beginning of the 18th century, it's the world's first purpose-built office building. It's where the Lords of Admiralty conduct their business. And my dad happened to work there still in the 1980s, just before the Navy was downsized. It's now occupied by a different set of bureaucrats. So we have lots of buildings for the Admiralty. We have a building for horse guards. If you look to your right, you'll see other buildings, of course. That's actually the back of Downing Street. That's a story we need to leave until we get back onto Whitehall, because the story of war continues. So we're going to leave Horse Guards now. We're going to leave through Horse Guards itself, that little arch that you can see underneath the turret with the London Eye lurking behind it. And that will bring us back out onto Whitehall, where we'll stop and begin to put the story together. So we're now walking through the middle of Horse Guards, through this set of arches, that we want to keep going out onto the street and then just pause there at the front of this courtyard. As you walk out, you might notice in the two sentry boxes the lifeguards who stand sentry here. And of course, at Buckingham Palace, if you go all the way down the Mall, you can watch the changing of the guard. And as you come out onto Whitehall, you can spot and smell the horses. 
So we're back on Whitehall, but we want to pause here directly in front of Horse Guards to just continue this story about war. On the other side of the street, on the right-hand side, you can see the Banqueting House. This is the really only surviving relic of Whitehall Palace. It was built by Inigo Jones in 1619, finishing up in 1622. It fulfilled the need for festive occasions, formal spectacles, court ceremonials. But then next to it, on the other side of the street, is the old war office. This, again, is the late 19th century, 1898 to 1906. If you look up, you'll see some very impressive sculpture. It's not clear, but on this side, facing Whitehall, we have peace on one side and war on the other. Now, of course, it's getting turned into a luxury hotel. We're going to cross this busy road, leaving Banqueting House on our right, and walk down Horse Guards Avenue. So as we walk down Horse Guards Avenue, you can see again the old war office on your left with more sculpture on this side. And then on our right, the Ministry of Defence, a much more modern building with these two massive sculptures of reclining figures in front of the portico leading into the building. It's designed in 1939, a date that we should know. It's finished in 1959. Initially, the occupants of the Air Ministry and the Board of Trade, a much older body established in the 17th century to advise on foreign plantations, colonies, in other words. So we have here in this early part of the story of Whitehall a story of foreign adventure, if you like, of war more explicitly. At the end of Horse Guards Avenue, as we head towards the river, we're going to turn right into an extension of Victoria Embankment Gardens, where we started, and look at some of the monuments that war has left in its wake. So we're turning right into Victoria Embankment Gardens and immediately you can see right next to the Ministry of Defence you have all kinds of statues and sculptures. Many of these are individual, the human figures are famous generals, but maybe more interesting, more recent are the monuments to collective endeavour during war, which we'll see as we walk through this garden keeping the river on our left. The first of these collective monuments on your right is to the Fleet Air Arm. But just as you pass it, it's also worth pausing and looking across the river. Look to your left, where you can see the London Eye. And right next to it, to its right, is another very impressive large building. This used to be London County Hall, a municipal counterpoint to the imperial blast we have on our side of the river. There's a building here from 1911. It's opened in 1922. It has additions in the 1930s. It's built to house the London County Council, which by that point has been around for about 50 years. Come the 1980s, the Conservative Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, is getting irritated by the progressive instincts of the Greater London Council, and so she abolishes it. This enormous building is sold off to a Japanese investor, and other tenants begin to move in. We do have a Greater London Authority now. It was re-established in 2000, but they set up shop further down the river in Southwark. They're there until 2021, and now they're moving even further east. So this municipal rebuke to central government, if you like, is no longer visible where we stand. 
So turning back from the London Eye and County Hall, we can look at more of these statues. Right next to us now is the Memorial to the Korean War. That went up in 2014. At the end of the garden, you can see a slightly mythical creature on top of a column. That's to the Chindit Special Forces who fought in Burma, and that's from 1990. And then most recently, right next to the Ministry of Defense building, a memorial to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And as we come to the end of the garden, you can see in front of us the rotating sign for New Scotland Yard, the home of the Metropolitan Police. It wasn't originally their home, it's originally a police office there based in the red brick building behind it. We're going to turn right here, heading back towards Whitehall. And so we're now walking along the third side of the Ministry of Defence. You can see the size of the building. We're leaving New Scotland Yard on our left. And next to it, we see a row of what looks like slightly older houses, which indeed they are. Originally, what's here is the Duke of Richmond's townhouse. That was built in the late 17th century, and it burnt at the end of the 18th century. And it's replaced by this terrace in the 1820s. These houses remain very fashionable private houses all the way until the 1920s, and then they're turned into government offices. They've since been transformed again, and we'll pick up that story in a little bit. So as we come to the end of Richmond Terrace, we're back on Whitehall. You can hear the traffic pick up again. This is a great point to stop and take up the story of government as it begins to expand beyond its military functions, but still haunted by the wars that it's fought. So on our left, in the middle of the street, we can see the cenotaph. On the side, you can see the glorious dead. It's the work of Edwin Lutyens. We've come across him in our previous walks. He puts this up in 1919, 1920. He's in the middle of his work on New Delhi, and he's actually perpetuating a memorial that was built in a rush in wood right at the end of the war. On our right, also in the middle of the street, we have a monument to the women of World War II. This was funded in part by the public, and this was only unveiled in 2005. The Cenotaph isn't always an easy place to be. Here's Lawrence Binion, a poem for the fallen in 1914. It's a poem that was read in part at the unveiling of the Cenotaph itself. With proud thanksgiving, a mother for her children, England mourns for her dead across the sea. Binion goes on to talk about solemn the drums thrill. In the next stanza, they went with songs to the battle, they were young. And then the most famous fourth stanza of this poem, they shall grow not old as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them. But Binion's not the only one to write poetry about the war. Here's Ursula Roberts, a few years later in 1922, commenting on the scene at the Cenotaph. The man in the Trilby hat has furtively shifted it. The man with the clay pipe has pushed his fists deeper into his pockets. Beparceled women are straining their necks to stare. Through the spattered windows of the omnibus we see, dumb beneath the rain, marshalled by careful policemen, four behind four, the relatives of dead heroes, clutching damp wreaths. Within the omnibus there is silence, but for a sniff. Then a plump woman speaks, softly, unquerulously, I wouldn't, she says. I wouldn't stand in a queue to have my feelings harrowed. No, myself I wouldn't. The omnibus swerves to the pavement and the plump woman prepares for equable departure. But there, 
she adds unbitterly. I often think it wouldn't do for us all to be alike. There's some as can't. But then again, there's some, you see, as can. And around these two memorials, again, to war, we see the state that mobilised the heroes to fall. The first thing to look at across Whitehall on the right is what used to be the treasury. It includes some remnants from Henry VIII's earlier palace. It includes some of the tennis courts he had. And the treasury itself is constituted later. It's constituted, again, a date we know well by now, in 1660. The first purpose-built block for it, coming a little bit after the Admiralty, is in 1733-37. to That's built on top of the former cockpit. Over time, it expands. What you're seeing here is from the middle of the 19th century and originally includes the Board of Trade, which we've met already. The Treasury moved out of here back in 1940. It's now occupied by the Cabinet Office. The reason being that it's a convenient spot, because directly in front of us, behind the gates, we have Downing Street. The street itself dates from the end of the 17th century, and then in 1730s, number 10 is remodelled for Robert Walpole. At that point, he's the first Lord of the Treasury, but it's with Robert Walpole that the first Lord of the Treasury becomes known as the Prime Minister. The streets had multiple additions over the years, of course. At the beginning of the 20th century, some barriers are put at the far end, initially for crowd control, then because there are fears about what the Irish might do following their war of independence. The barriers you see in front of you at this end are put there in 1973. The gates are put there in 1989. This time it's against the IRA, which is conducting a bombing campaign in London. It's the epicentre of government. It's also the epicentre of protest. So we've had to move down the street a little bit. And then on the other side of Downing Street to the left is the Foreign Office. This comes into existence in 1782, which sounds late. Before that point, there are two departments, one called Southern, one called Northern. They actually combine domestic and foreign affairs, but it's at the end of the 18th century that they're split up. The new Foreign Office first is located in some houses next to St. James's Palace, so ways away. But it moves here quite quickly thereafter, and it's joined by the Colonial Office, a separate department ruling over territories rather than managing affairs with foreign powers. Again, it's the mid-19th century when things change. They need more space. They need more space in part because India has become part of their portfolio. The East India Company has made a right royal mess, and so the crown is going to govern South Asia. There's a competition to design this building. There's a huge fight over what style it should be in. Some people think Gothic. Some people think Italo-Byzantine. But what you have is neo-Renaissance. The Foreign and Commonwealth Office is open once a year, and if you can make your way inside, you'll see that the India Court is in fact the largest space in the building. It's one of four courts, and it's massive. It's also decorated with very similar art to that that we saw in the East India Company headquarters back in the city, Britannia receiving the riches of the East. So we're going to keep walking down Parliament Street towards the Houses of Parliament. You'll see more of these government buildings cropping up. Beyond the Foreign Office on your right, you'll see some new government offices. These were built right at the beginning of the 20th century. On your left, you'll see something even more recent, the redesign of Richmond House in the 1980s in this strange neo-Tudor style. And all of these buildings are occupied by a rotating series of government departments. It's worth mentioning some of them. In the new government offices on our right, originally we had both the Home Office and the Ministry of Health. The Home Office was involved in military functions up until the 19th century. As the 19th century goes on, it adds prison, it adds police. It's joined in these new offices at the beginning of the 20th century by the Ministry of Health, which was only established in 19. 
1919. There are other offices here too, when the building opens. On the east side, this neo-Tudor house was occupied in the first instance by the Department of Health and Social Security. This is a much later invention, formed in 1968 through the merger of what had been health and social security. That has a history that goes back again to the war. The Ministry of Pensions coming along in 1916 to provide benefits to veterans. This building on the left, Richmond House, might indeed be rebuilt yet again. There's a proposal that the Houses of Parliament should be vacated, but that's a story we'll pick up in a little while. So we're coming to the end of Parliament Street now. You can see on the left the Houses of Parliament, on our right is Parliament Square. We're going to cross and we want to meet where you can see Winston Churchill on the corner glowering at us. So hopefully you've made it safely over to Churchill and you'll want to head over into the middle of the square where you can get a good look at everything that we're seeing around us. So here we are in Parliament Square. It's a great place to stand, to reflect, to look around and to think about the way in which power has accumulated and settled and shifted over the centuries. Let's start by winding back the clock. Originally what you have here is an island between two streams, Thorny Island, and we have a small monastic community we know about it from the 7th century, but it is small. There are maybe 12 monks. It's a monastery olum, a little monastery. But the kings begin to notice their piety, perhaps. Harold I is buried here in 1040. In 1050, Edward the Confessor begins a new church. It's not the Westminster Abbey you see in front of you, but it's the start of this place, Westminster, as a centre of power. He builds the abbey on the higher ground to the west and his own palace on the lower ground nearer the river. Both of these grow under his successors. William II builds the hall, the medieval hall you can see in front of the Houses of Parliament at the end of the 11th century. Henry III, a couple of centuries later in 1246, starts a new abbey, the germ of what you do see before you. And there are more additions, of course, over the next few centuries. The abbey is more or less complete by the 16th century, at which point Henry VIII, the story we've heard already, is moving the palace up the street. This area, the hall and its surrounds, are increasingly occupied by the parliament and by law. Even as the state grows, though, even as more people are congregating here, the facilities are always playing catch-up. At the beginning of the 19th century, in 1800, the Act of Union brings in new members to the Parliament from Ireland. In 1832, the Reform Act expands the suffrage still further. It retains property requirements, and of course, women still cannot vote. But the architectural changes to accommodate all this growing activity are piecemeal. And then... In 1834, the palace burns down. That clears the way for what we have today, perhaps the most famous 19th century Gothic monument in London. 
It's the result of a competition in 1835. It's designed by Charles Barry, the great believer in regularity and symmetry. He's helped out by Augustus Putin, who labours on the details, who doesn't believe in symmetry to the same extent, and dies insane from the workload at the age of 40. The houses are ready to occupy by the House of Lords in 1847. They're used by Queen Victoria in 1852. There's a second expansion of the suffrage in 1867, but still, of course, the houses as you see them are witness to the imperial hierarchy that was in operation at the time. At the south entrance, under the Victoria Tower, at the other end from Big Ben, you have the royal entrance. It leads to a highly decorated royal robing room. It's only used at the state opening of Parliament once a year, then to a royal gallery through which the monarch processes, then to a prince's chamber, which is one of the minor lobbies for the House of Lords, then to the House of Lords, then to the Peers' Lobby, another corridor, a central lobby, a commons corridor, interestingly much lighter and plainer than the highly decorated bit dedicated to the aristocracy, and finally to the House of Commons, with Big Ben at the very northernmost point of the palace. Things have changed a bit over the years. In 1911, a law was passed whereby the Lords were only able to delay rather than actually block legislation. In 1958, people can have peerages for life, not for their family. But there are still a 100 hereditary aristocrats sitting in the upper chamber. And of course now the palace is falling apart. It's been 150 years it needs upkeep. The renovation, according to some estimates, could take up to 76 years and cost as much as 22 billion. But still, of course, our representatives are very unwilling to decamp. Some of those representatives, 210 out of the 650 MPs in the House of Commons, work across the road in the much more modern building. You can see Portcullis House. This was built at the turn of the 21st century. More interesting than the building itself, though, is that it sits on top of a redesigned Westminster underground station, which opened in 1999. It's a huge concrete box, and if you descend under Portcullis House, you can see it spread out in front of you. And then if you turn around from Portcullis House to the right of the Abbey, you can see a very pale building with a very elaborate portico figures over the entryway, the most recent addition. This is now dedicated to the Supreme Court, which came into existence only in 2003, originally built in the early 20th century for Middlesex Guildhall. So here we have Parliament Square. The square itself is also quite a recent invention. It was cleared in 1806. It's where London's first traffic signals were set up in 1868. In 1928, it becomes a huge roundabout almost, as you can see and hear, and it's redesigned in 1950. It's also stuffed with the statues of the great and good who helped make the modern world of industry, empire, and finally nation. The earlier statues here are of great statesmen, Peel and Palmerston, Disraeli and Abraham Lincoln, Jan Christian Smuts of South Africa, and Winston Churchill, who appears in 1973. More recently, we have statues to those who've had to deal with the consequences of these things. Nelson Mandela, over in the far corner, comes in 2007, Mahatma Gandhi in 2015, and then most recently, Millicent Fawcett in 2018. You might not have heard of Millicent Fawcett, but she was an enormously important figure. Not a radical, she was a patriotic pro-war imperialist, but she did work tirelessly for women's suffrage and education. Here she is in 1906, writing in the Daily Mail, trying to explain to its readers why we women want votes. 
Why do women want the franchise? The obvious reply is, for exactly the same reasons that men want it, to secure the attention of Parliament to their various wants and wishes. As long as the parliamentary franchise was very much restricted, so that practically only the upper and middle classes were represented, women were in a relatively less disadvantageous position than they are now. They were excluded from citizenship, but so were the great mass of the artisans and laborers of the country. Now, the only other classes which share with women an invidious distinction of disenfranchisement are felons, idiots, paupers, and peers. The peers are compensated by having a house of their own. Felons, idiots, and paupers suffer only temporary disenfranchisement. Women and women alone are permanently and forever shut out from all share in controlling the laws by which they are governed. It took another 12 years, of course, for women to get the vote. But still, the need for accountability of our representatives to the people goes on. So the square remains a site of protest. Famously, there was a protest against the Iraq war for a number of years after 2001. More recently, there was a democracy village at the beginning of the 2010s. And so we come to the present. A fragmented country, many would say, an embattled government, certainly. We're divorced from Europe, again. We're pushing back refugees. We're trying still to profit somehow from global trade. But it's also worth remembering that this is just the latest layer. This is just the latest chapter of the story of a city at the center of a country finding its place in the world. So it's time to leave the square. It's time to find a slightly quieter place to reflect on everything we've seen. Cross over the road right by Nelson Mandela heading towards Westminster Abbey, and then we're going to turn right, skirting the abbey round its west end. As you come to the end of the abbey, if you look to your right, you'll see more modern buildings. The Queen Elizabeth II Conference Centre, the Central Methodist Hall, an extravaganza from the early 20th century. We're going to go left. We're aiming for the archway. If you get here during the daytime, you'll be able to go through into Dean's Yard. You can see the sign above it. If not, you might just want to linger here so that we can think about what we've seen. So it's the end of this walk, but it's also the end of all three walks. We've linked the city and Westminster. We've seen the story of a city and a country that have never been only one thing. In our first walk, on the one hand, in the city of London itself, we have a place to accumulate wealth through trade, to some extent through manufacture, above all through finance. On the other, in this last walk, in Westminster, a place to build up power both to marshal the resources of the state from subjects and citizens and to project that power overseas through war and more. And between the two of them, in our second walk, we saw the professions, which service both power and wealth and try to carve out their own space to do their own thing, the press, the law, and finally, the academy. Underneath all these stories, though, of the city of Westminster, we must remember there's another kind of landscape, shaped both by water and by faith. Before, there was a palace, there was a monastery, then there was an abbey. If you're in Dean's Yard at this point and look around, you'll see that some of these buildings are indeed quite old. Originally, there was a granary here, a bakehouse, a brewhouse, the things that the monks needed to get by. 
Nowadays, it includes the headquarters of the Church of England. That dates back to the beginning of the 16th century with Henry VIII divorcing Rome. Also around us, you'll see the buildings of Westminster School, an even older foundation. The reason this can be here, though, is due to water. You may know Tyburn on the other side of Hyde Park is a place where criminals and traitors were hanged for many years. But before that, it was a burn, a stream, which ran down from the hills of Hampstead, which split at what is now Green Park and created this island on which Westminster was formed. An island for a state governing a country that is an island and is still today trying to make its peace with the world. Historicity is written and presented by Angus Lockyer and produced by Jelena Sofronievich. This series was produced in partnership with the Institute of Historical Research at the University of London. You can find out more about them at layersoflondon.org. See the episode notes for the other walks and follow Historicity wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>